0: Welcome to another episode of our NCLEX review series. In this podcast, we continue to bring you valuable materials to help you prepare for your exam. Enjoy. We are in it to win it tonight. Our first topic is antibiotics. I am going to take you back. If you're not familiar with this class of medications, I am going to take you back in history because you know what? I like studying things in context, and I want you guys to truly see how this specific class of medication came into play for Western medicine. So before there was antibiotics, there was this pre-antibiotic era where there needed to be treatment for serious illnesses, conditions, infections, fever, inflammation, and so what that treatment was. The standardized treatment at the time was called bloodletting. Have you guys ever heard of that before? So um, if not, I'm happy that you're here. You're learning something new. Bloodletting was essentially what it sounds like. Um, the, 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 The physician at the time would drain the body of certain amounts of blood. I mean, it could be a pint. It could be a quart. But the idea was this would help. Decrease the chance of infection. This would help um, decrease complications. If you had a fever, the idea was, was well, if you had less blood, then there was there was a there was less fluid in the body to become infected. Childbirth. Um, the idea for childbirth was if after the baby came, the mother could possibly hemorrhage, right? So if we drained her of blood then, hey, there's not going to be any postpartum hemorrhaging because there won't be much blood. And so this was, I don't want to say barbaric, <laughs> but this was what was happening to people. And so you see, you know, you see the death rates increasing and, uh, at that time, and there was just very little sanitation. But people came knowing that, hey, if I was ha- not feeling well, if I had seizures, if I had inflammation, if I was about to give birth, um, if I had a temperature, then it would be prudent for me to drain off a lot of blood in order to treat that condition. So, you had you had instances where, hey, you look back, the leading cause of, cause of death are things during that time, the 1900s, that were very, 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 very treatable things that you know we treat all the time today but before antibiotics if you had diarrhea you could die yeah if you had pneumonia that was like a death sentence not only for you but we know how contagious pneumonia is so pretty much your entire house all right droplet precautions was not a thing tuberculosis that was a death sentence all right um, and, 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 not only for you, but you guys know we use airborne precautions. Now we know that transmits through the air. And so, um, these conditions really, really, really were, uh, detrimental to society. Uh, you have, uh, streptococcus pyogenes. This was a condition that caused 50% of all birth related deaths. Okay. Very treatable bacteria, um, streptococcus caucus aureus, so wound infections, like your, your, your MRSA that we see, they had an 80% fatality rate, an 80% fatality rate. So, I mean, just blow, blows my mind, uh, the things that we have been able to treat. And then before antibiotics, if you were born with these two conditions, you carried them. So this, the the, the first guy, I remember Mark was looking at this and he was like, is this real? Yes. So this orbital cellulitis with an abscess in 1908, this is what it would develop as. But essentially, this is nothing but an untreated sinus infection. Okay. This is nothing but an untreated sinus infection. That's how these start today. So, you know, if you get a sinus infection, you get a, you get a pack, you get some antibiotics, it's over. But if that sinus infection is not treated, it's going to cause bacteria to grow in your sinuses. Your eyes are right there, okay? And the infection leads to abscess. That is going to cause some disfigurement, some pain. But if you have no other choice, your body will continue to live, all right? And in pedigo, now, I mean... This is just unheard of for children. This is just unheard of for children because it's so, so treatable. So before antibiotics came, um, things were bad medically. There was not much that could be done for you. But antibiotics were discovered um, in the 1940s. There there was just this golden age where you have, if you look at the timeline here, you can see that around... Um, nineteen o eight all right, so the beginning of the nineteen hundreds there was an a uh, discovery of antibiotics. It happened um, accidentally I'm not going to go into the story, but um, this timeline just to demonstrate that in the nineteen hundreds is when we first began to use antibiotics so not very long ago not very long ago if you talk about the 1940s and 50s and 60s you know some of that is either your parents lifetime your lifetime your grandparents lifetime so very recently did we discover the ability to apply these antibiotics to um, to today's illnesses and as you can imagine the use of antibiotics in healthcare revolutionized what we have been able to do. And so when we talk about antibiotics, are we talking about curing viruses here? No, 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 no. So antibiotics are only used to cure bacterial infections. All right. So keep that in your mind. If if a if a patient has, you know, the influenza virus, okay if they have a viral infection a common cold they are not supposed to be on these antibiotics and and um and so understanding who is appropriate for antibiotics is a huge responsibility of healthcare providers as well because research is showing that we can do a lot of damage if the viruses and improper bacteria become educated on these medicines, you know? So I'll get into super infections a, a different time here. But so we're gonna start filling out our workbooks um, here and we're gonna look at the, the the antibiotics, the medications to take with food, to take with food. And so these, um, these antibiotics, you have to take them with food because food will help decrease GI upset and so, one of the common things about antibiotics is that they will get rid of the good bacteria in the body, right? So they cause a lot of diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. So we have here two, we have here um, two classes of drugs that I would like for you to know that you need to take with food. But also I'm going to focus on the safety points and the client education points of these antibiotics. And so with pharmacology, you want to make sure that you are studying the important points of the medication. All right. So the the, the first one is cephalosporins. Cephalosporins. And cephalosporins are, are, are very common. What you need to know for them is that There is a cross-sensitivity for penicillin. So if a client is prescribed a cephalosporin, we do need to ask them for the NCLEX exam if they are allergic to penicillin. Okay. Also, if a patient is taking a cephalosporin, um, then it puts them at risk for bone marrow suppression. Okay, so it reduces the the, the bone marrow that is produced. And so the example that I have here for you to know is ceftriaxone. This is one of the more common medications that you will see on NCLEX, and I'll get to why it is the cephalosporin that I see the most frequently when I'm preparing for NCLEX. Okay, Um, client education about a cephalosporin is that they can cause your urine to demonstrate false positives. So the two false positives are uh, a false opioid. Okay, so that means that if you take, if you give a urine sample and you're on a cephalosporin, it will come back that you are possibly addicted to heroin morphine um op- like you know so these opioids so this is this is important for us to tell our patients right um because if you are on a job interview if you're going for a job interview and they they, they make you take a drug test and you're taking this antibiotic when your employer gets back that result it will indicate that you're an opioid user and you're not you're just on regular antibiotics So it's an important teaching point for the NCLEX exam. Also, this medication will cause you to have false glucose readings. Okay. So that your blood sugar, um, is falsely elevated due to the medication. So I see NCLEX questions about that all the time and I wanted to share it with you. If you want to know more about the, the cephalosporins, uh, besides ceftrioxone, I did put them in quick facts for you to read over. Okay. The second um, antibiotic are the macrolides, particularly the example here is azithromycin and erythromycin. So these are alternatives to penicillins, uh, and alternatives to cephalosporins. If your patient is allergic to either one of those, we can start looking at azithromycin as an option. The thing about azithromycin and erythromycin is that they can cause cardiac changes particularly the QT segment prolongation Okay, and so this this lecture this lecture will particularly be heavy on medication names and classes but I want you to Think about what we're focusing in on. So I'm not having you, typically when I see students flashcards for farm, they're overdone. You guys are trying to study all of the side effects. You you know, you're studying the generic and the brand names. You gotta really cut some of that back because it won't be on the exam, all right? Safety points, safety, safety, safety. That's what this class is about, Um, teaching education. That's what this is about. And so I want you to see how I structure my notes for competency. All right, so those are the medications that we take with food. Let's look at the medications that we're going to take on an empty stomach. And the next group that I'm gonna show you, there's three, they're all found in your Quick Facts book. So um, I have developed them more in your Quick Facts, or five-star Quick Facts. I'm gonna give you the highlights here, the first one. Is penicillin okay penicillin has to be taken on an empty stomach because the absorption rate is going to be decreased if there is food there so the client education very simple with penicillin you guys know we need to monitor we need to make sure that this medication is safe people who have allergies to penicillin don't do well if they're given penicillin all right so that is the major point of administering this type of medication. Also, remember, penicillin is one of the only safe medications. There's not many medications that are safe. Um, but you can give this antibiotic during pregnancy and breastfeeding. This is essential to know. Okay. And then epinephrine is the antidote for an allergic reaction. Okay? Epinephrine is the antidote for an allergic reaction. That is the go-to. I don't care whatever choices that you're presented, always choose epinephrine. Okay. The tetracyclines are also in your Quick Facts for NCLEX book. The major points is that tetracyclines do cause photosensitivity. All right, what does that mean? I need you guys to know these terms. Look it up if you're not familiar with photosensitivity. Okay. Also, you do not give tetracyclines to uh, children or during pregnancy. Okay, they can cause um, fetal defects. And, and tetracycline is a hepatotoxic drug, so it is going to cause issues. Tetracyclines are a hepatotoxic drug, so it is going to cause issues with the liver, so you're gonna to have to monitor your patient's liver function. And, and that's not all that, um, that's not all that That is not all of that uncommon with antibiotics, okay? All right. Now, the last class of drugs that I wanna talk about are the um, sulfonamides, and there is one here that you need to know specifically, and that is the um, trimethroprin sulfamethoxazole okay now this medication is particular for your exam this is the this is the most common one that I see and it's also in your quick facts as well again here if you are giving your patient this medication monitor for photosensitivity also monitor for a rash Stephen Johnson syndrome okay steven johnson syndrome and so this is a highlight point of administering this medication you also you're giving it on an empty stomach but you don't want to give it with antacids because sometimes people can say oh i'm I'm taking this medication but it causes me to have heartburn i don't like it a lot so if that's the case we we still we, we need to tell them don't take this with antacids because it will delay medication absorption This is also another medication that you need to avoid giving during pregnancy. Okay, so we are moving right along here. We went over the medications you take with meals, the medication you take on an empty stomach. Let's look at the medications that are not given orally. So we would not expect to prepare an oral solution here. And so this is great for if you need to clarify an order for your NCLEX exam. So the first um, medication that I want to talk about here, number one, is an aminoglycoside. Okay. Aminoglycosides are heavy on the NCLEX exam. And so gentamicin in particularly, you don't expect to give it orally. It has a very poor absorption rate in the gastrointestinal tract. It is normally given IV. Yeah. It's normally given IV. Now the side effects of the side effects of gentamicin and really, um, aminoglycosides in general are going to be ototoxicity. What does ototoxicity mean? You guys know this. You guys know this stuff. Ototoxicity, yes, is damaging to the ears. Also, nephrotoxicity this medication will cause some kidney damage yeah and so to to monitor the therapeutic level of this medication we need to do a peak and a trough are you guys familiar with a peak and a trough Are you familiar with that term so Just really quickly, because I know I have some nursing students in here that um, may not have been in their final year, may not have come to pharmacology in classes. So the peak in the trough is essentially blood draws that are done. So you actually take the patient's blood and you measure, you measure the amount of a specific medication in the blood. So the peak is when you're looking for the medication at its highest point. That's the peak and then the trough blood draw, you're looking for the medication right when it should be out of the system, okay? When you're about to administer the next dose, right? Because the medication has worn off. So you wanna make sure that there's a specific level of that medication, all right? So that is called the peak and the trough. And the, the registered nurse, uh, typically, depending on where, where you work, will be doing that blood draw, all right? The second medication that we don't give orally um, is a glycopeptide, vancomycin. Normally, vancomycin is given what? It is given IV. Normally, vancomycin is given IV, and vancomycin as well will cause ototoxicity, nephrotoxicity, and you have to watch out for red man syndrome. Okay, you have to watch out for red man syndrome, and I hope you guys get a chance to look that up before your NCLEX exam. It is hot information. Okay, now when we talk about administering antibiotics, we're we're very happy to do so, but we have to prepare our clients because the most common side effect of antibiotics is. Diarrhea. Yes. And that just goes back to how all antibiotics are going to really decrease the good bacteria in the gastrointestinal tract. And so that bad, that bad bacteria, it will be there to wreak havoc. All right. Critically think here is C. difficile, colostrum difficile, considered an antibiotic associated diarrhea. What do you guys think? Can you get C. difficile from being on antibiotics for too long or at all? What do you think? Yes, it is. Absolutely, absolutely. Some people normally carry some people normally carry C. difficile around and, and they don't know because their good bacteria keeps everything in check, keeps everything good. But if they take an antibiotic, a vancomycin, a penicillin, you know, and that good bacteria is decreased, then the, the C. difficile spores will begin to grow and and honestly, it is a very serious condition. Nobody wants C. difficile um, because untreated it, it could be very life-threatening, okay? So, So we have to tell our clients, though, that even though the most common side effect is diarrhea, we have to let them know that they have to continue. They must take the prescribed course of antibiotics, even if their infection symptoms disappear, even if they have diarrhea, you you gotta continue to take them. It's always better to finish your treatment. Now, this is very important for your NCLEX exam because NCLEX likes to reflect what is happening in real practice. And so right now, the most commonly prescribed antibiotics for hospital um, clients are going to be vancomycin. So that's what I'm saying, you need to know this for your NCLEX exam, okay? The um, piperacillin tax- taxobactam. Now let's just stay here for a second if you are giving number two, if you're going to give the piperacillin, taxobactum, what, what type of, of medication is this? Just based off of the name. What do we need to um, monitor our patients for? And you guys all know this. Do not get intimidated with pharmacology. What do we need to monitor our patients for? What do we need to ask them if we're about to give this medication? We need to monitor for allergies because what does piperacillin tell you? <laughs> look at that name, all right? And that's why I need you guys to dig in with me here. I need you guys to look look, and read. This tells you that this is a penicillin-based antibiotic, right? And so if you're given this on NCLEX, you already know what time it is. You guys know this. You guys know this stuff, all right? We just need to review it. That's why this is, um, That's why the NCLEX review is so important, because it helps to bring things to your attention. So um, two, this is a penicillin-based antibiotic. That makes sense. Um, and then number three is a, is a cephalosporin. We already talked about this one. All right, this is a ceftriaxone. Got to know it. And then four is levofloxacin. And this is a a fluoroquinolone. All right. So these are the four you want to make sure that, you know, you absolutely want to make sure that, you know, for your NCLEX exam. All right. Now I covered the antibiotics. Let's do some questions uh, just based off of what we went over again, the full review again, get in the virtual trainer, get the books, so we can have a full spectrum of the antibiotics studying together. All right, let's do some questions here. I know you guys love questions. Uh, It says, number one, the nurse is caring for a client prescribed intravenous penicillin for a urinary tract infection. The nurse notices coolness and swelling around the IV insertion site which assessment should the nurse make first? Number one, monitor the client for an allergic reaction. Two, evaluate if the intravenous catheter is in place. Three, notify the healthcare provider. Four, discontinue the penicillin antibiotic. Okay, all right. Here we are, here we are, here we are. What is, what is going to be the correct answer here? All right, and this question, I'm gonna tell you this question needs to be read appropriate. Sometimes nursing students will fail NCLEX because they don't answer the question that is being asked. So the correct answer here is number two. Evaluate if the intravenous catheter is in place this is the assessment that the nurse needs to do first okay all right so monitoring the client for allergic reaction not an assessment related to the coolness and swelling around the iv insertion site okay coolness and swelling around the iv insertion site is not an applicable assessment here um, notifying the healthcare provider not an applicable assessment Discontinuing the penicillin antibiotic, not applicable assessment. And so evaluating if the catheter is in place is going to be related to the coolness and swelling around the IV insertion site. And so it's these kind of questions that trip up so many students. It's these types of questions because the answer is specifically based on the question. And so if we're reading too fast, if we're, we're, we're coming to our own conclusions about what's important, and we're not taking our time to read for understanding, then we can easily give the wrong answer. And so I can't stress it enough. If you are not content, I, I love content, half the battle, all right? Reading is fundamental. That's the other half of the battle for most of you guys and you, and you come back and you say, I failed the NCLEX. I knew the content and I know you knew the content, but can you read, can you read for the the nursing priority? Can you read for the nursing priority? So let's do another one here. Um, it says two: a client is prescribed an antibiotic that has a side effect of renal crystal formation. Okay. Do we know what that is? Which of the following is most important to encourage effective renal clearance? And so um, look at what we're trying to do. Okay. Which one is most important? Number one, consuming a low protein diet during medication therapy. All right. Um, Two, encouraging the client to void every two hours. Three, drinking eight to 10 glasses of water a day. Or four, monitoring monitoring renal function during medication therapy, all right? Now, if we're reading here for comprehension and understanding and nurse priority, all right, The important thing, the most important thing, because all of these things are are very important. That's the thing about it. They're all right. But what's most important right now is going to be basically three. And this is something the client can simply do to keep their urine clear that will allow them to have a decreased risk for the, the, the renal crystal formation. Okay. All right. Another question. Let's give it a try here. It's in your workbook as well. It says... Um, a client prescribed tetracycline states a client prescribed tetracycline states that taking a medication on an empty stomach is difficult and causes heartburn. Which is the most appropriate most appropriate statement for the statement for the nurse to make? Number 1. The medication can be taken with orange juice but not with food. Two, dairy will decrease the absorption of the tetracycline. Three, the medication can be taken with a slice of bread to prevent heartburn. Four, food or drink will decrease the absorption rate by 50%. all right so which statement is going to be the most appropriate for the nurse to make and it will be yeah that's right yep it's gonna be number four okay because the client needs to know even if this medication causes you discomfort, you have to take it appropriately. If you don't take it appropriately, you're going to have this infection a lot longer than what you need to, and there's a chance that if you're not taking it the correct way, the infection can become educated to the antibiotic and essentially become a More stronger than the antibiotic which is what you never want right so the client has to understand you cannot take anything (laughs) with this medication all right should be taken one hour before meals if you do take any food or drink it doesn't matter if it's orange juice if you try to do a slice of bread peanut butter or cracker you can decrease the absorption rate by 50% okay all right now Let's transition. Hey, let's transition into our next topic for tonight, which is super confusing, super confusing for new nurses, new graduates. um, And it it is huge for client safety because you've got to get this right if you're giving this to your patient. And that is going to be blood and blood products. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Safety. You gotta know this. So let's just start uh, with the general information, and then I will break it down into more specifics. So, blood is a fluid, right? It's a fluid in the body. It's a transporting fluid. All right. So we're gonna re- we're gonna review the most important safety points about this. And, and the goal the goal of of a blood or a blood product transfusion is to deliver oxygen to the tissues. So if you guys remember, we were talking about letting out blood as a treatment, in the pre-antibiotic era. Now we're talking about giving blood. We're talking about giving blood. So the, the goal of the blood transfusion is to deliver oxygen to the tissues. And I just wanna give a, a, a context about this. Um, so one of the first blood transfusions was done by a physician, with his sister and I apologize his name escapes me right now but he was caring for his sister who was about to deliver a baby and she began to hemorrhage she was losing a lot of blood and so he had the idea that if I give her some of my blood she will do well And so um, he did, and he transfused his blood into his sister's blood and she had a great recovery. And so other people said, wow, this could really work. And so physicians began to transfuse their blood into their patient's blood. um, And then what they found was, hey, my patient's not doing so well when I do this. Why is that? Can you guys think about why The the one patient who transfused his blood into his sister, why other physicians who tried to do it to their patients did not have the same results? Can you guys think of why it was not working for them, but it worked for him? All right. So the reason why, of course, is because the physician and his sister were related. So they just happened to have the same what blood type. Yes. And so um, if you get blood from a random stranger and it doesn't, it doesn't meet the compatibility with yours, then how how are you going to do? You're not going to do well. You're going to be even sicker. And so blood transfusion has come a long way now that we know that there is an appropriate time to give it. There is an appropriate type to give for patients. So it's just really, it's really helpful. And it's really great to know the background of some of of these pharmacology um, that, you know, that we commonly use. And, and, and I want you guys to be remarkable nurses and being remarkable nurses means that you're well-rounded, not only in current medical practice, but also the history of our medicine as well. So we're talking about blood as a transporting fluid. And so the reasons why we give blood, the, the indications are essentially this, surgery, okay? So pre, pre-antibiotic time, you if a person was having surgery, they would bloodlet, they would drain them of the blood. Now we know we're gonna give them blood now. That is an indication, all right? So if you have some sort of injury, if you had some sort of surgery, um, then we, we give you blood, okay? Also, anemia, anemia. And of course, hemophilia. What does hemophilia mean? Somebody needs to put that down, the definition of hemophilia. I know there's one watching that does not know, okay? So, we're gonna talk about um, the verifications that you need to do before you give a patient blood. And there's two types of verifications. There's a paper and then there's a client. So the paper verification, these are things that um must be done well, I can say legally. Yeah, they have to be done legally, but there there has to be a written protocol before you give a patient a blood. You cannot just give a blood or a blood product without these things in place. All right? So The paper verification checks, number one, are the prescription. Got to have a valid prescription for blood. Mm -hmm. Also, type, cross, and match. Okay? So if you're giving blood, if you're giving blood, you got to have the type, cross, and match. Okay? So you don't give an inappropriate blood type. Now, also, 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 um, let me say this for number two. Too. I'm, I'm going to go back to it. Um, for, for blood, when you're giving blood, you got to have that type, cross, and match. But if you're giving plasma, all right, you don't have to have it. You don't have to have a type, cross, and match, all right, because you won't have many blood cells in that plasma. Number three is a consent form. OK, so we we diff, We typically need a consent form unless it's an emergency situation, then you would give blood without it. But normally, if, if you or myself just needed blood, then we would have a consent form signed. OK, so just want to make that clear. And then two registered nurses to verify the blood and they have to sign sign off that they have looked at the type, the expiration date, you know, et cetera. Then make sure that this is the correct prescription medication for your patient. Okay. So those are the paper verification checks. Now the second verification checks are going to be the client verification checks. So if you're going to give blood to a client, Well, you gotta know the correct patient, that's for sure. Okay. Vital signs. And um, vital signs, especially the temperature, needs to be checked before you give blood. And I've seen the times range from anywhere from, you know, 10 to 60 minutes. So I just put 60 minutes before. You need to check the vital signs an hour before and that may, that may change depending on your facility, but just know that vital signs are something that you do before you give blood, okay? Because if, if your patient has a temperature or their vital signs are irregular, you do not want to infuse blood to them, which can cause further complications. If your patient has a temperature, they have a fever, they have an infection, putting blood into them, new blood may, is not gonna help the situation, all right? And then a large gauge catheter, And this is an intravenous catheter, guys, all right? And it needs to have a filter needle in place, all right? A large gauge catheter with a filter needle. Hey, check out your quick facts, the blood administration section, as well to review this information. Now there are also time requirements. There are also time requirements. And so what are they? Oh, students get uh, really mixed up here so let's go over them 30 minutes is 30 minutes is that first box and this is the time you have to begin your transfusion after it is removed from the blood bank refrigerator okay because blood is kept cold so you need to Have everything ready to go so that when your nurse's aide goes and gets that blood for you or you go and get it and it comes to the unit, you're ready to go. You have to stay with the client. You have to stay with the client for 15 minutes to assess them for any complications, allergic reaction. All right. Patient has back pain, shortness of breath, hives, itching you will see that within 15 minutes. And so you have to physically be there with the patient. Now, you continue to monitor the patient for 30 minutes. You continue to monitor the patient for 30 minutes. Now, four hours is, right now it is the evidence-based Standard of time that raw blood can be um, left out. So you have four hours to completely transfuse blood. Now, new studies are being done to see if blood can be used longer than that, um, up to 24 hours. But I don't have any conclusive data. So for our state board exams, four hours to completely transfuse blood. And then after that time, you would disregard uh, the blood and all the tubing and get new blood products and new equipment for the patient Okay, as, as far as tubing goes. Alright, All right. The, the last thing on this page here is the equipment requirements. So we did paper, client and now time and then here is the equipment requirements. So in order to infuse blood, we never run blood to gravity. We always put it on an electric pump. You gotta have that filtered tubing and then normal saline is the only acceptable fluid that you would hang with giving a blood or blood product okay all right now here is a a separate discipline question we're not talking about isolation precautions today but you guys know i love isolation precautions um so if we're talking about giving blood and blood products what isolation precautions are needed when you are handling somebody else's blood what do you guys think that answer is going to be yes 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 we all know you gotta use universal or standard precautions when you are giving uh, a treatment of a blood or blood product okay okay So that is a great overview of blood, the requirements, the checks. But now I want to dive a little bit deeper and go into the specific blood products because this information is where it can get really confusing. And um, so we're going to start with an anatomy review for our visual learners. We have a chart that we're going to fill out. And then for our readers and our writers, we're going to take some good notes. So let's get started here. All right. So, here is our anatomy review. Fill out your boxes. We're going to start with blood. Yeah, so we're talking about blood. Well, blood breaks down into two components. All right, so if we wanted to split blood down, we would break it down into the blood cells or the plasma. Okay, now let's focus on the blood cells. We need to be more specific if a doctor orders blood cells, okay? Because you can give red blood cells, white blood cells, or platelets. Did you know that? Did you know that all three of these are considered blood cells? Very, very, very important to know. If a doctor orders blood, um, I have to clarify immediately, okay? What do you want me to give? Okay, so if we go back over to plasma, plasma can be given. You can give whole plasma or you can break it down and just identify the protein in plasma. All right. And um, and so I'm going to even break that down further for you guys. But as you can see, there are many things that we could be given a patient if they call for blood okay and so that is the safety point knowing these divisions and it all goes back to anatomy it all goes back to anatomy we can never leave it when we talk about pharmacology so now let's um, let's transition and let's take some notes on this chart so the, the the blood is considered actually a connective tissue when you think about connective tissues you don't really think about blood because it's a liquid but it actually is an atypical connective tissue because it does connect body systems together, right? So your blood is flowing and it's what connects, you know, the, the GI system with the, um, the immune system, or the muscular system to the skeletal system. You have blood flowing in and out of all of these systems. And so we talked about how blood has two divisions. Um, there's two division of blood. There there are the, the, the blood cells and the plasma. So we're gonna break down blood cells and then we're gonna go down to plasma. So A, we're going to talk about the three divisions of the blood cells. Are you guys with me? And I know this is a, this is a lot, but this is what's required. Look, this is what is required when you're studying pharmacology. You have to do all of these steps or it doesn't stick with you. You won't won't remember unless it's presented this way. All right, so this is my teaching style. Hope you love it. Here we go. So blood cells, um, there are three divisions of blood cells. You have your red, you have your white, and you have your platelets, which we saw from our chart. So if we're talking about the red blood cells, what is the function of the red blood cells? Easy peasy. We know the red blood cells. We love them. They're very easy to understand. This is what supplies oxygen. Okay? It supplies oxygen and it removes carbon dioxide. So if a patient is getting um, a, a blood cell transfusion, they need red blood cells. Okay? We know that their hemoglobin is probably low. Okay? Now, Um, white blood cells sometimes white blood cells are confusing um, if you will read them as leukocytes so white blood cells can also be called leukocytes so if I wanted to write a difficult NCLEX question I could just say a client's leukocytes were low and nursing students would be scrambling like what is the leukocyte number wow what is the normal I don't ever remember reading that Uh, well that's just white blood cell count all right So white blood cell counts are interesting because they further break down into three divisions. Yeah, right? So A is the granulocytes. And remember the function of these white blood cells are to ingest or destroy pathogens. So they eat up, they eat up bacteria, they eat up viruses, all right? I think the white blood cells are probably the most difficult to remember. Um, We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. The the plasma might be challenging, too. Um, So granulocytes are white blood cells. Okay. Monocytes, if you remember, um, this is more seen on the entrance exams for nursing school. They help with your adaptive immunity. All right. They help you to adapt to viruses. They help you to gain immunity. And then the, the lymphocytes... We, we see them when we talk about um, HIV or AIDS. These are the B cells, the T cells as well. So they help with your immune response if you become immunocompromised. And so all of these are types of leukocytes or white blood cells. All right. Depends on how fancy you want to be. Okay. Um, three, the blood cell type platelets very straightforward I think they're very quite familiar with nursing students they uh, help you to have your blood to clot yeah they help you to have your blood to clot so that is their function okay so now you guys know about the blood cells now let's look at the plasma Uh, I like plasma because this is another you know component of blood you can also be ordered to give a patient plasma plasma breaks down into protein and so there's three types of plasma proteins for the NCLEX exam that you want to know. The first one is albumin. Oh, my goodness. We know albumin. Albumin is very popular if your patient um, has had burns or any kind of trauma and we need to you know, maintain their pressure from an extensive amount of blood loss okay so that's when we would give a, pro- a protein a plasma protein like albumin very expensive to give albumin it, I mean because you know that normally if a patient has blood loss listen if a patient has blood loss from a severe trauma the first thing that we're gonna give them is what what are we gonna give them that's an um, that's an isotonic fluid that is very cheap to give a patient Yeah, it's going to be normal. It's going to be normal saline. It's going to be sodium chloride. We're going to give it because it's cheap. It's available everywhere. You get the huge bags of it. You give it to your patient and it will replace their blood, uh, their blood loss. But albumin is is very expensive. It is a it's a um, it's like a boutique treatment, but it serves a great purpose. All right. The second is um, immunoglobulin. And immunoglobulin is a plasma protein that helps with your immunity. And this is, if you guys remember, again, from the nursing entrance exams or even your, I guess, physiology anatomy review. This is where you get into the Ig IgA, IgG, IgM. Right. So we, we study that for the T's exam. And then the fibrinogen this helps with blood clotting and so you can actually give clients uh, fibrinogen and this is where you you can be it's called um, fibrinogen is going to be called the fresh frozen plasma FFP this is this is what you're transfusing your transfusion the, the fibrinogen All right, and it will need to be thawed 30 minutes before because you, you normally store that frozen Okay, so a lot of takeaways. I mean, I'll just say this it's definitely prudent for you to know the three types of plasma here albumin, immunoglobulin, and this fibrinogen as a whole class. You don't need to get into the IgAs, IgGs, IgMs. Do not try to memorize that for the NCLEX exam. All right. Okay, okay, so many takeaways here. I hope you guys feel so much more comfortable distinguishing the difference between blood and blood products, all right, what they break down to. Let's check out some questions, and these were tough, but I'm challenging you guys right now. Question number one says this. It says, which of the following actions by the nurse require follow-up education? Select all that apply. Number one, verify a valid signed consent is placed in the client record. Two, if the client is an infant, verify the identity with a wristband and parent if available. Okay, I'll read that again. Number two, if the client is an infant verify the identity with a wristband and a parent if available three examining the type and group number to identify the age of the blood four immediately stopping the transfusion and discarding the contaminated blood if an allergic reaction occurs or five taking the client's temperature and other vital signs before retrieving blood. So which one of these require follow-up education, meaning which one is incorrect? Well, the correct answer here is going to be three and four. Yes, we need to do some follow-up education for three because Examining the type and group number to identify the age of the blood we don't we don't uh, look for the age of the blood we need to know the expiration date of the blood it doesn't matter how long the blood has been you know captured what is the expiration date okay so we're not um, we're not trying to memorize ages of blood Four immediately stopping the transfusion and discarding the contaminated blood if an allergic reaction occurs. No, remember, we keep the blood for a specimen instead of throwing it away. We do not throw it away. We need to get a blood sample from the patient. We need to get a urine sample from the patient. We need to keep that blood so that the blood bank um, can have a sample of it, all right? And then five, so, I'm sorry, 1 2 and 5 are going to be correct, okay? 1 2 and 5 are going to be things that we would want we would want the nurse to do. Okay. All right. Let's try another question here. And it says here, question number 2 is which of the following is the highest nursing intervention when administering a blood transfusion. Okay. Number one, documenting the treatment in the client's chart. Two, informing the client of abnormal laboratory values. Three, warming the blood prior to infusion. Four, educating the client on signs of an allergic reaction. So which one is going to be the highest intervention? Okay. The correct answer here, because they're all they all are right. They all look good. And maybe you can get it down to two and you're stuck. But which one is the one that's going to focus on patient safety the most? That's the one we want to go with. And so that one is going to be. Yeah. Number four, educating the client on signs of an allergic reaction. And this is because this one directly has to do with any life threatening reactions. All right. And so the the patient, the client will need to know. What do I need to look out for while I'm getting this blood? All right, so it's easy here, reading, okay? Reading it is easy, understanding it, prioritizing the answers can be challenging. Three, here, I like this one. The nurse has initiated a transfusion of packed red blood cells. After 12 minutes, the client begins to report shortness of breath itching and back pain the nurse stops the blood transfusion which of the following is the appropriate next step okay number one stop all fluids from entering the client and take a urine and blood sample two run normal saline at half the rate of the blood transfusion three Run the normal saline at a rate of 25 milliliters per hour. Four, run the normal saline at double the rate of blood transfusion to flush the line. Okay, so critical thinking here. Patient is having allergic reaction clearly, right, based off the symptoms. We know we're supposed to stop the blood transfusion, that's clear, we all know that. But what do you do next? What are you gonna do next for this patient? Okay. The correct answer, I don't know, it may be a surprise to you guys, I hope you got it. It is going to be number three. Run the normal saline at a rate of 25 milliliters per Hour. This is considered the keep vein open rate. It's considered a low rate, a keep vein open rate, which becomes the priority during this time. Um, some of you guys stopping all fluids from entering the line, we don't want to do that because we've given blood. And so, what does blood have a tendency to do if it's not moving, if it's standing still? It will have the tendency to clot yes and so if we just cut off the blood and there's blood infusing in the patient and it's in their veins we can actually create blood clots if we don't keep that fluid going so we want to stop the blood keep the line patent that's why we look for the keep vein open rate so anything else of um, running the blood at a normal rate uh, other than keep vein open you're, you're administering another treatment and so Running the normal saline at half the rate of the blood transfusion, then that's actually where we'll require an order for you to do because you're giving fluid. Most blood transfusion, you know, you're giving um, maybe 200. uh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe you're I'm trying to think of what a normal rate would be for blood like so for instance, if you're giving, you know, 150 milliliters an hour, right? So if you want to have that, you're giving 75 or you're giving hundred milliliters an hour, you need to order for that to give a patient that much fluid, right? Also, um, if you're going to give double the rate of the transfusion to flush the line, you're really going to need an order to have that because then you're given 400 or you're given 300, um, milliliters an hour. And so this is going to potentially put your client at risk for hypervolemia or congestion, pulmonary congestion. So very, very, very carefully, um, not only reading the NCLEX questions, but knowing your content, you have to be able to isolate the priority here, especially when it comes to pharmacology. You know what? It's not over. We're about to go into the NCLEX virtual trainer. We're gonna go over some medication administration points so that you can demonstrate you know how to properly give a medication. You know, before we give medications to any clients, there are the rights that we have to check. And there are many rights. I know we started with six, but now they're like 20. But some of them are making sure we have the right patient, the right drug, the right dose, the right route, the right time, the right documentation, and I know you guys know many more. Remember, we always verify three times those rights before we administer any medication. Let's look at the different routes that you can give a medication and talk specifically about things to note. So for PO, There are crushed and liquid medications. Now, we already talked about when you're NPO for the diet section. So PO here means by mouth. NPO means nothing by mouth. But for crushed medications, remember, you can give them orally, but you do not crush meds that end in these letters, these very important letters. They are, EC, ER, EX, and SR. Do you know what these abbreviations mean? EC means what? Enteric coated. So it's specifically made not to dissolve in the stomach. ER is extended release. EX could also mean extended. And SR means sustained release. So these medications should not be crushed. They need to dissolve as the manufacturer intended them to. Now when it comes to liquid medications, remember nurses, we always measure them on a flat surface. We always measure them on a flat surface. And if you're administering a liquid medication For an infant, you want to use a syringe to measure that medication. Oh, let's talk about ear medications. When you have to give an ear medication, the start of it is how to hold the penna. And the penna of the ear is the part of the ear on the outside of the body that you see. So it's the part of the ear on the outside of our heads Um, And it's mostly made of cartilage. But the way that you hold that penna will facilitate where that medication goes. So there's different ways for the adult and the child. For the adult, you hold the penna up and back. Up and back. And for the child, you hold the penna down and back. And when I say child, I mean this is for the child about three years old. I always remember this because with an adult, there's a U in adult and there's a U in up. So I remember that I hold the penna up and back. And with child, there's a D in down and there's a D in child. So that's down and back. Medications should be room temperature because if you give a client a cold ear drop, Medication, it will cause dizziness and vomiting. How long should you wait when you give an ear medication before giving it in the other ear or changing positions? What do you say? Five minutes is the correct time length after you give a medication to allow the medication to travel through the ear canal. Now, let's talk about rectal medications. Rectal medications are an alternative to PO or IV medication administration. A big point, before you give a rectal medication, you have to use lubrication. And that lubrication is going to be a water-based lubricant. Never petroleum, always water-based there are three types of enemas that I want you to be aware of and they are actually oral enemas, right? So you can have a rectal enema or you can have an oral enema. So an oral enema essentially means you drink it. So let's talk about the three. The first one is barium. Barium is a white chalky substance that is usually given before a diagnostic procedure. If you're having a diagnostic procedure, like a CAT scan of the abdomen or the intestines, the healthcare provider will have you drink the barium because not only is it uh, enema, but it also will cause the intestines to light up on the diagnostic procedure. The second type of oral enema is called lactulose and lactulose, again, is a substance that you drink, and it will cause you to expel what from the intestines. Because you're, um, you're gonna have actually diarrhea, that's the way the enemas work, but with lactulose, it specifically binds to ammonia. So you will be able to reduce the ammonia level in your client with lactulose. And this is very important for clients that have what kind of issues. You guys remember, what kind of patients have problems with ammonia, you remember, our renal patients, right? Because if they're eating a lot of red meats, they're not excreting that protein. And so it ferments into the body and becomes ammonia. So lactulose will help patients get rid of that ammonia. And the last enema is called K-exalate and if you think about what it gets rid of which is potassium, potassium is represented by the K and so this will get rid of the K it's called K-exalate and it will help reduce potassium through the bowels. next route of medication is the eye medication and the steps to administering an eye medication appropriately is to tell the client to look a certain way do you know what it is do we tell the clients to look up or should they look down if we're trying to put a medication in their eye they should look up yes they should look up and then we place the medication in the lower conjunctiva sac that is where it should be absorbed you do not want to place medication directly on the cornea which I see happen a lot you put an eye drop even patients do it to themselves when they put eye drops in they put it directly into their eye directly on the eye but the cornea is very sensitive and it's very delicate so you can actually decrease your vision or cause blindness by putting drops directly onto your cornea. Now, if NCLEX gives you a scenario where eye drops are prescribed and eye ointments are prescribed, hmm, which one do you give first? Do you give the eye drop or do you give the eye ointment first? The correct answer is the eye drop. Yes, you want to give the eye drop first because the eye ointment is usually a thicker consistency. So if you put that in the eyes first, the eye drop, which is a liquid medication, is not going to be able to penetrate that ointment that may have a petroleum base or something else that would block it. Oh, we got to talk about the G-tubes, those gastric tubes, because we give medication through there all the time. Now, initially, when a G-tube is placed, you need to check for placement with an X-ray. So an X-ray should be done to determine that that tube is in the correct place, And, and normally the doctor will have to write an order that it is okay to use the tube because it's been confirmed. Also, before you put any medications in a tube, you need to assess for residuals. What's a residual? The residual is when you actually take an empty syringe and you pull back on that tube to see if you get um, residuals of feedings or fluids in that manner. When it comes to residuals, the magic number has now been increased to 500. That's right, 500. Before, if you guys remember, it was 100. 100 was the number. If you got more than 100 back in residuals, you had to hold the medication. But now the number is 500. So you can get up to 500 milliliters of fluid, food, or whatever back and still be able to give a medication. Now, if you get over 500, then what does that indicate? That now indicates delayed gastric emptying. And so the healthcare provider needs to be notified. Remember, medications should be given via gravity. We should not push any medications into the tube. It should run by gravity. And if multiple medications are administered, they need to be administered separately. We should not be mixing all the medications into one container and then giving them. All right, let's talk about IM injections. IM injections are injections, of course, into the muscle. It's very important for us to know how much medication a muscle can hold. So for an adult, the maximum amount of a medication that one muscle can hold is five milliliters. And for the child, the maximum amount a medication can hold is two milliliters. When it comes to IM injections, there is always a question of, do you aspirate, do you not aspirate? For most IM injections, you do not need to aspirate for them. Okay. Um, And then specifically, NCLEX may ask you, do you aspirate for vaccinations? The correct answer is no, you do not aspirate for vaccinations. When it comes to giving injections, remember do not give IM injections into paralyzed muscles. When the muscles are not well developed, they will not be able to absorb the medication appropriately. And just for fundamental sake, remember you inject at a 90 degree angle. So the final route that I want to talk about is the topical route of medication. And remember topical medications are applied directly to the body surface. So that includes creams, ointments, lotions, and patches. Let me ask you this, would we consider shampoo a topical medication? What do you guys think? Is shampoo a topical medication? Yes, absolutely, it's applied directly to the scalp. So we would consider that. Remember, for our patients, we need to wash their skin or wherever the medication is applied daily and make sure that skin is dry for best absorption. And specifically when it comes to patches, whether it's for pain or smoking or birth control, you want to make sure that you remove old patches before placing new ones on the patient. And then for our registered nurses, we always use gloves whenever we are giving any route of a medication. And finally, always document that you gave that medication because if you didn't document it, then the courts will interpret that you did not do it. Okay, medication administration is complete. Let's move on to the next topic. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating. We wish you all the best in the coming examination. See you next time.